BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Nevada offers the same lax residency requirements to obtain a divorce today as it did nearly a hundred years ago. A person only has to live in the state for six weeks before being eligible to file for a divorce. But not too long after Nevada gained a national reputation as the place to go for a quickie divorce, Las Vegas was the scene of a brutal public murder on the steps of a law office in a tale involving domestic violence, the death of a child, and a desperate insanity plea to avoid the gas chamber. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, the sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. After the 1929 stock market collapse, Nevada was in the same dire financial straits as the rest of the nation, and its elected leaders were looking for ways to stimulate economic activity in the state. Two years after the crash, in 1931, the Nevada State Legislature passed a measure that reduced the residency requirement to obtain a divorce from the already short six months to a mere six weeks. This resulted in the development of a booming business in the state six-week packages at divorce ranches. These were spots where spouses could wait out the residency requirements in luxury. As a result, Nevada saw a 101% increase in the number of divorces filed in 1931 compared to 1930, and the law had only gone into effect for the last three months of that year. However, in those days, Nevada was still a fault state, meaning a spouse seeking a divorce had to prove grounds such as adultery, extreme cruelty, or abandonment. 
But with the loosening of the residency requirements, Nevada courts developed a reputation for a fast and loose interpretation of the legal grounds for divorce. They'd often stretch the definition of extreme cruelty or refuse to delve too deep into a spouse's claims of adultery. Despite this permissive view of divorce, Nevada courts were still inclined to take a more nuanced approach to divorce cases involving actual Nevada residents, as opposed to those taking up temporary residency in the state. This was due in large part to the fact that the population of Nevada in 1930 was only 92,000 people, making it one of the least populated states in the nation. Even Nevada's largest cities were just small towns by comparison to the rest of the country. The small-town nature of Nevada meant that local courts often took into heavy consideration the reputations of the parties involved and had a greater interest in ensuring a full hearing. Plus, judges in Nevada are elected. This created an additional incentive for local courts to avoid the appearance of rushing through cases where the involved spouses, as well as their friends and families, would be among those deciding whether to retain a judge come the next election. Ray Elmer Miller was raised in rural Nebraska and lived most of his life on farms in that part of the country. Ray's early life had been marked by tragedy. His father had killed himself when Ray was just a small boy, and the scars from that suicide remained with him for the rest of his life. In Ray's mind, this traumatic action by his father later led him to commit an act of life-altering violence. As Ray entered adulthood, a job as a truck driver brought him to Las Vegas. Ray quickly became a well-known local, working for various companies in the area. Sometime in 1927, Ray crossed paths with Evelyn Potter, a Mormon girl from Mesquite, a tiny town near the Nevada-Utah border, about 90 miles from Las Vegas. Evelyn was only 16 years old, while Ray was 11 years her senior. Only a year after they met, Ray Miller and Evelyn Potter were married, and Evelyn gave birth to their child, Peggy, in January of 1929. The Miller family was not a happy one. By Evelyn's account, she was subjected to frequent physical and emotional abuse from Ray, while Ray claimed that Evelyn failed to feed their baby while he was out on the road for work. Disputes over the care of their child led to a heated argument over how to treat the baby after she came down with a fever. Evelyn demanded they switch doctors, while Ray insisted on sticking with their child's current doctor. Ray won the argument but their child's doctor was unable to save the infant. According to the attending physician, the Miller's daughter passed away at the age of five months due to an illness resulting from teething. On July 4, 1929, a brief notice from the Millers appeared in the local newspaper. It read, We wish to express our heartfelt thanks and appreciation to the many friends who were so thoughtful and sympathetic during our recent bereavement when we lost our beloved daughter, Mr. and Mrs. Ray Miller. The death of their child caused an irreparable rift in the Miller marriage. The couple was still living together in Las Vegas at the beginning of 1930, but by the end of that year, Evelyn had returned home to the family ranch in Mesquite, where she resided with her parents and several siblings. Evelyn took a position as a waitress at one of the local diners in Las Vegas to help make ends meet for her family. By the age of 21, she had already been married, lost a child, and separated from her spouse. Meanwhile, Ray took up work at a massive federal construction project occurring a few dozen miles south of Las Vegas, Boulder Dam, later to be renamed Hoover Dam. Work at the dam was often dangerous. 
lax safety regulations, frequent use of dynamite for excavation, and steep cliffs leading to the Colorado River were just a few of the hazards facing workers. These circumstances ultimately claimed the lives of 96 workers on the dam and left countless others injured, including Ray Miller. After their separation, Ray became fixated on maintaining control over Evelyn. He obsessively stalked her when she traveled to Las Vegas for her job as a waitress. And in the days before restraining orders and anti-stalking laws, Evelyn was simply forced to become familiar with the creeping discomfort she felt every time she caught Ray coldly staring at her from his truck, where he'd sit parked for hours while he waited for her to leave work. The constant harassment Evelyn was subjected to by Ray culminated in a sadistic incident that occurred shortly before Evelyn finally decided to proceed with divorce. In late November of 1932, Ray mailed his estranged wife a package. Inside that package were several articles of baby clothing that had once belonged to their deceased child. By late 1932, Ray was a man seething with an obsessive rage centered on his wife. In the two years following their separation, Evelyn seldom broached the topic of divorce with Ray because each time she did, he would erupt and threaten to kill her if she dared to legally terminate a marriage which was already over in all but name. Despite Ray's threats of harm, the cruel baby clothing incident was too much for Evelyn, and on November 30th, 1932, a legal notice, no larger than an inch and a half, appeared in the local newspaper that read, Evelyn Miller versus Ray Elmer Miller. Action for divorce on the grounds of extreme cruelty and non-support. Parties married January 16th, 1928 at Mesquite, Nevada. Harmon and Foley, attorney for the plaintiff. As it turns out, Ray would ordinarily have spent November 30th at the Boulder Dam worksite, but he suffered an injury to his thumb the day before and decided to take the day off work to heal. At some point that day, Ray flipped through the newspaper and came across news of the divorce filing, including the grounds for divorce. Ray decided right then and there that he would seek his revenge. Ray woke up the morning of December 1st, 1932 and informed his employer he would once again be taking the day off work. He then headed to the police station as it was the Clark County Sheriff's Office that had responsibility for serving legal papers. Ray wanted to see if Evelyn had left the divorce papers there. The desk officer informed him that no papers had been left. Ray thanked the officer and then headed to his next destination. Still seething, Ray drove a few minutes to a secondhand store where, under the fictitious name of James Ferguson, he purchased a 32 caliber pistol along with ammunition. After returning to his truck to load the pistol, Ray took the last drive he would ever take. He headed to downtown Las Vegas and the Palace Theater building. The Palace Theater was a two-story building located directly across from the Clark County Courthouse. The first floor featured a cinema, lounge, and diner, while a suite of offices occupied the second floor. Miller entered the Palace Theater sometime after 10 o'clock that morning and took a seat at one of the tables near the diner. Then he waited. Ray knew from the notice in the newspaper that the firm of Harmon and Foley was representing Evelyn in the divorce case she'd just filed. He also knew that the firm's offices were located on the second floor of the Palace Theater building. Less than an hour after Ray arrived at the Palace Theater, Evelyn walked through the main entrance. 
As she made her way past the ticket booth, she caught sight of her estranged husband. Without saying a single word, she walked past the man who had terrorized her since their separation and made her way to the stairs leading to her attorney's office. Evelyn startled at the sound of the first gunshot as a bullet struck the stairwell wall just a few feet in front of her. She turned her head to see Ray standing in the theater lobby aiming his newly acquired pistol directly at her. There was no time for Evelyn to react before a second shot rang out. This round struck her in the lower back, then tore through her intestines and liver before coming to a rest in her abdomen, causing Evelyn to collapse on the stairs. Ray then pulled the trigger with the intention of sending another round into his wife's body. He fumbled with the firearm in an effort to clear the jam, but by now, several other patrons in the lobby had broken out of their shock from witnessing the cold-blooded shooting and leapt into action to prevent Ray from firing again. Ray was in an enraged emotional state as two good Samaritans forced the gun from his hands, but this rage quickly subsided into stoic resignation, with Ray telling the two men holding him she knew what she was getting shot for. Police arrived from the nearby station within moments and placed Ray under arrest. Though in critical condition, Evelyn was still alive. She was rushed to the hospital where she was given a blood transfusion and underwent immediate surgery to repair the damage to her abdomen. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The attack on a young woman by a well-known local rocked the small town of Las Vegas, which at the time had a population of only about 5,000 people. News of the shooting of Evelyn Potter traveled quickly to the offices of the local papers, and reporters were dispatched to conduct a jailhouse interview before the day was over, interviews that Ray was happily willing to give. Ray accepted full responsibility for what he'd just done in the lobby of the Palace Theater, he even speculated that fate played a role in the death of his wife. Ray spoke about the injury that kept him off work the day he learned about Evelyn's filing for divorce. During one interview, he said, When I came into town and got to thinking about things, I made up my mind to kill her. If I hadn't hurt my thumb, I would have been out on the job as usual and she'd still be alive. Funny how things work out. A reporter inquired whether Ray had planned to shoot himself if his gun hadn't jammed. He replied, I should say not. Ray spoke frankly and had an air of casual resignation about what he'd done. As Ray was unaware of the status of his wife's condition, he told reporters, If she dies, I'll take what's coming to me. If she lives, I'm willing to pay. When the reporters asked about the motive for the shooting, Ray gave what appeared to be a candid and superficially plausible explanation for his actions. 
He said he had been brooding over what he believed was Evelyn's role in the death of their infant daughter. The rage finally boiled over into a dramatic display of violence. By Ray's account, he had been planning this terrible act for some time. I had this thing all planned five months ago. I'd have shot her then, but my brother interfered. But despite Ray providing the death of their daughter as the motive for the slaying, only a day after the murder, Ray told local journalists, I loved her. If only she loved me as much, everything would have been all right. But she seemed to delight in doing things that tortured me, just tore my heart out. That explanation sounded a lot more like a motive rooted in jealousy rather than revenge. Doctors and staff at the local hospital made their best efforts to save Evelyn's life, but the young woman succumbed to her injuries within 24 hours of walking up the steps to her attorney's office. Ray Miller would now face capital murder charges. Upon learning of his wife's death from his jail cell, Ray told reporters, she's dead, the baby's dead, and I guess it's my turn now. Based on Ray's statements to the press, it was taken as a given that he would plead guilty at his upcoming arraignment and throw himself on the mercy of the court in an attempt to avoid ending up in the Nevada State Prison gas house. Such a move would be rare in Nevada legal history at that time and not without risk. It had been 15 years since the last time someone pled guilty to murder and sought mercy from a Nevada judge, and in that case, the judge issued a death sentence. The residents of Las Vegas waited to see whether District Judge William Orr would spare Ray Miller's life. Miller appeared before Judge Orr on December 12, 1932, in a frigid courtroom at the Clark County Courthouse. The courthouse was located directly across the street from the site of the brazen daylight murder he'd committed only 12 days prior. The room was packed with curious locals and reporters from papers across the region. How do you plead? The judge asked as he looked down from the bench at the mild-mannered accused murderer. Ray answered, not guilty. The spectators in the room were shocked at this reversal from the man who only days before had, in no uncertain terms, expressed his willingness to accept whatever punishment may be coming his way. Harry Austin, a prominent local attorney who'd been appointed counsel for Ray just a few days before the trial began, then stepped in to inform the court that his client was unable to be held liable for the shooting by reason of insanity. A panel of three local physicians, along with Judge Orr, conducted a mental health evaluation of Ray over the following weeks to determine whether he was competent to stand trial. After several continuances, the verdict on Ray's competency was delivered by Judge Orr. It was determined that he was fit to stand trial for the murder. Ray and his attorney then started work on his defense, which evolved into the argument that Ray Miller had been driven temporarily insane by the death of his child, and as such, he should not be held criminally responsible for his actions in the lobby of the Palace Theater. The capital murder trial of Ray Elmer Miller commenced before a jury of Las Vegans on the morning of February 14, 1933. And since Ray's claim of temporary insanity shifted the burden of proof away from the prosecution, the trial opened with the defense. Ray did not dispute the fact that he gunned down Evelyn. In fact, he brazenly testified, if my wife could be brought back to life, I'd do the same thing over under the same circumstances. Miller's claims of insanity rested on three separate premises. First, Ray testified how the trauma of his father's suicide had affected him during his formative years. 
Next, the defense presented evidence of a physiological basis for insanity. Ray had sustained a head injury and then later came down with a case of syphilis, with each of those incidents allegedly causing changes to his personality. And finally, Ray testified to his obsessive belief that Evelyn was responsible for the death of their infant daughter and that he felt compelled to seek revenge. Miller's attorney was apparently quite persuasive in presenting an argument for temporary insanity, but Clark County District Attorney Harley Harmon would soon have his chance to rebut the defense's case. Harley Harmon had a reputation as an aggressive prosecutor, known for seeking the death penalty in most murder cases under his jurisdiction. Harmon was also intimately familiar with the Miller case. In small towns, such as Las Vegas, local prosecutors were permitted to have side practices in civil litigation. And as it turned out, Evelyn was on her way to visit Harmon at his office to discuss her divorce case the morning she was murdered. It was day three of the trial when District Attorney Harmon approached the accused killer sitting on the witness stand and asked Ray about a letter he had written to Evelyn. In the letter, Ray had admitted he had said some terrible things and that the separation had been his fault. Harmon then asked, Mr. Miller, wasn't it your policy to hurt your wife as much as possible after the separation? Yes, Ray replied. That's why you sent Evelyn a box containing baby articles not long before you shot her. Yes, Ray repeated. Ray had testified earlier in the trial saying that Evelyn caused the death of my baby. District Attorney Harmon took the young construction worker to task for this statement. Wasn't your wife the one who wanted to change your baby's doctor because she wasn't happy with the care provided by the doctor in attendance? That's correct, Ray replied. After subjecting Ray Miller to nearly two hours of grueling cross-examination, Harmon then asked the defendant, Isn't it a fact, Mr. Miller, that you saw you had this girl whom you married in the little town of Mesquite when she was 17 years of age, trapped there on the stairway of the Palace Theater, and you shot her in the back? Ray replied, yeah, I guess that's true. During his closing arguments, District Attorney Harmon stated that Ray Miller was in full control of his mind and he understood the difference between right and wrong at the time he gunned down Evelyn Potter. And for that reason, the only way to deliver justice for the community was to sentence him to death. Harry Austin, counsel for the defense, presented an equally compelling case that his client should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. He examined every aspect of Ray Miller's testimony, drawing the conclusion that his entire demeanor was that of an insane man. The case was sent to the jury of 12 men at around 9 o'clock on the evening of February 16, 1933. It didn't take long for the jury to conclude that Ray Miller was perfectly sane at the time of the shooting and that he should be found guilty of murder. However, it took two hours of deliberations and four ballots for the jurors to decide whether or not to hand down a life sentence or the death penalty. The jury filed back into the courtroom about half an hour before midnight. Judge Orr asked the jury to recite their verdict. The foreman, William F. Harrison, read the verdict with a quiver in his voice. We, the jury, find this defendant, Ray Elmer Miller, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree and fix his punishment at death. Ray Miller sat stoically in his chair with one leg crossed over the other while the jury read the verdict. The only slip in Ray's emotionless demeanor occurred when he allowed a shake of his foot upon the jury announcing the death sentence. 
Ray Miller chose to not appeal his death sentence to the Nevada Supreme Court, and Judge Orr ordered that Ray was to be executed in the Nevada Gas House in Carson City the week of May 7, 1933. Ray continued with his calm demeanor as preparations were made by prison staff for his death in the gas chamber, which was situated directly across the way from his cell at the Nevada State Prison. According to Warden Matt Penrose, the only time Ray displayed any sort of indication that his imminent demise was weighing on his mind were a few bouts of nerves in the two weeks before his death date. Only days away from Ray's execution date, an urgent inquiry arrived for Warden Penrose from Clark County. District Attorney Harmon wanted closure on an old case he'd come across during the prosecution of Ray Miller. In 1927, Ray was roommates in Las Vegas with a man named Stanley Montgomery. Miller's roommate had died that year of a gunshot to the head from a single 22 rifle round, a death ruled a suicide after a coroner's inquest at the time. But given Miller's recently discovered murderous disposition, Harmon had a series of questions regarding the death of Montgomery that he wanted the warden to ask of Ray. Harmon had developed a theory that Miller killed his roommate in a jealous rage over a dispute for the affections of Evelyn. The young woman had apparently become infatuated with Montgomery at the same time Ray was pursuing her affections. Another aspect of the Montgomery case that raised Harmon's suspicions was the fact that the victim had no powder burns to his head despite the cause of death being ruled a suicide. Ray accepted the invitation to Warden Penrose's office at the Nevada State Prison, where he calmly explained, as he had at the coroner's inquest six years earlier, that Montgomery was prone to mood swings and suicidal thoughts, and that on two occasions, Ray had to secure the firearms in the home to prevent Montgomery from harming himself. Apparently, Ray's explanation of the circumstances surrounding Montgomery's death was satisfactory to Warden Penrose and D.A. Harmon, and Ray's execution for Evelyn's murder would proceed as scheduled. It was May 7, 1933, the day before Ray Miller was scheduled to be put to death. Miller had no special request for a last meal, but the prison chef took it upon himself to whip up a fresh strawberry shortcake for the condemned man. Miller then spent the rest of the night playing solitaire in his jail cell. The wife slayer, as the local press referred to Ray, awoke before dawn the following day. He was ordered to dress in his denim prison uniform and headed across the way from his cell to the gas chamber. A dozen or so onlookers peered through the glass to capture a glimpse of the condemned man's last moments. Strapped into a chair, Ray held his breath for 30 seconds as the almond-scented fumes from the cyanide mixture filled the gas house. Then he exhaled and breathed in. If press accounts of the time are to be believed, Ray slumped over in unconsciousness within a breath or two. Evelyn Potter's family made the 90-mile journey to Las Vegas to collect her body and return it to Mesquite, where she was buried in the family plot. The couple's infant child, Peggy Miller, rests among strangers at the Woodlawn Cemetery, a National Historic Site located near downtown Las Vegas. Meanwhile, Ray Miller, who refused to notify authorities as to his family's whereabouts in order to spare them the knowledge of his crime, was buried in a lonely grave alongside other condemned killers on the grounds of the Nevada State Prison. 
To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit mayheminthedesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited, and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024.